Welcome to the Everybody Assumes podcast. I'm your host, Mishulam Unger. Here, we try to unpack the most complex events of our political era through the eyes of a 19-year-old absolutely fascinated by politics and history. Welcome back to the Everybody Assumes podcast. Just to give you a brief update on why there hasn't been an episode since early July, uh, I've been volunteering with the Biden campaign. Though this podcast is run by me and I've done partisan work, I try to keep it as fair and nonpartisan uh, as I can. Now on to this episode, it's with Stefania Taladrid, who's a contributing writer uh, at The New Yorker and on the editorial staff there. She was also a speechwriter in the Obama administration involved with foreign policy and a recipient of the Presidential Management Fellowship, which is a pretty prestigious um, award. And she also went to Georgetown University at the School of Foreign Service and got a degree in Latin American Studies. In this episode, we discuss her reporting on the uh, Hispanic American community's role in the 2020 election. One of the biggest trends that we saw from this election was that uh, Hispanic voters came out for President Trump in numbers that were unexpected. To Stefania, they were uh, not so surprising, and it makes for a really interesting episode, and we dive deep on this issue. Um, Her reporting more broadly has covered um, basically the entire Spanish-speaking world, whether it be in uh, Spain, Venezuela, uh, the United States, Uh, other parts of South America and Central America. Um, So she's really, really well-versed. She actually speaks five languages um, and grew up in four different countries. So very, very interesting person and uh, a fascinating episode. We begin by talking about Florida and her reporting in Florida, both with the Biden campaign and with uh, supporters of President Trump in the media down there, in the Cuban media. Um, So that's where we're going to begin. Thank you for listening, and uh, please like, rate, and share us wherever you uh, are viewing this podcast. Now, enjoy the episode. Thank you so much, Stefania, for making the time to talk this evening. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. So let's begin with the news of the day or the news of the past month. Um, Florida, 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 before the election, uh, everyone thought that if Florida got called the NIDA for Joe Biden, it would be the race would be his. In the end, it was his, even though Trump is contesting. But back to Florida, Biden lost the state quite early in the night by more than 400,000 votes, we later learned. And only one of majority of the majority minority county of Miami-Dade by about 7% compared to Hillary Clinton's uh, 30% margin in 2016. Before we go into the real specifics of what you observed uh, in the communities in Florida and across the country, were you surprised um, with those results on election night? Well, that's actually an interesting question. I wasn't. And um, the reason why that was is because um, polls early on showed Biden underperforming among Latinos. I mean, um, there was a poll in September, which really, you know, raised the alarms for, for the campaign because it showed that um, Biden was leading Trump among Hispanics by um, 53 to 37%, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that was a 16% titch point margin um, that was much lower um, compared to what Clinton had received 
um, mm-hmm. in 2016 exit polls, right? So, so his underperformance among Latinos was was there from the beginning, right? And what mm-hmm. you saw um, was the campaign kind of trying to make up for that and responding by, um, you know, hiring several advisors and associates and consultants and and spending a lot of money on 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 TV ads and um, and even radio ads in the state and others. But it, it was clear that that by by that point the effort came into late, right? I mean, September was was just two months away from the election. And um, even though the investment and the amount of money that that the campaign invested was was um, quite significant, it it sadly came in late, right? And so there's only mm-hmm. that much you can do um, within two months. Um, and so so it wasn't a surprise mostly because you know a lot of people had been um, raising concerns about this. They had warned the campaign to do more to to court Latino voters because after all, you know, mm-hmm. Latinos make up 17% of the electorate in Florida, right? So there's mm-hmm. by no means a small a small group. Um, just among all battleground states, um, Florida has the largest Latino electorate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was this was a, a key state for the race, um, and it would have been wonderful to see the campaign taking it much more seriously than it did. So one of the characters that you say um, and that you profile as as being the uh, like the Cassandra almost for the Biden campaign, um, the guy saying it's always been uh, uh, you're under investing and we're going to lose this. It's a guy named Chris Wills. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm. Yes, um, that's right. He's the uh, Florida Hispanic Outreach Director. Um, so mm-hmm. he coordinates all the outreach for the Biden campaign to the Hispanic communities in Florida. Um, and he basically says, we're going to lose this. So can you talk a little bit more about what he says and um, his story to add a little bit more color to um, what you just previously previously said? Absolutely. So I, I spent several weeks in Florida. And, and the first piece that I did was was focusing on, on, on disinformation among um, the Cuban-American community mm-hmm. there. Very interesting and then piece. The idea we'll get back be- to that. Yes, thank you. And the idea was was then to focus on Biden's tremendous opportunity among um, other Latino diasporas, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, so the Cubans. I mean, you know, a lot of people refer to them, and they are they make up twenty nine percent of of the electorate in Florida. But there are myriad other groups who are um, incredibly important too, right? And and mm-hmm. and Biden did have an opportunity there to 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 seek their support to court those voters. Um, and to make inroads uh, with that electorate, right? And so Chris was one of the of the people who who was brought on board to the campaign in September, among with several other senior advisors and consultants. Um, and I met him um, in October while while I was reporting the first piece about disinformation. And then I met him and and several of his colleagues. And what surprised me most was that you know just sitting with them and talking to them they told me that they did not have a budget to work with. And that was, you know, quite striking considering, um, again, as, as I said, just the relevance and the importance of the, of the Latino electorate in the state, right? And just the notion that you'd have a, um, a Hispanic outreach team, not only underfunded, but just with no fixed allocated budget to work with, mm-hmm. um, considering that the campaign, we're talking about a campaign that raised over a billion dollars, just 
was very very hard for me to understand right um mm -hmm. and 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 then as i as i kept following them and, and getting to know them i i realized that they were actually the ones putting their their own money into some of the events that they were organizing to generate enthusiasm among voters right yes. and of course i mean we cannot forget about the fact that this election took place among a, in the middle of a pandemic right and so, mm -hmm. so there was um obviously all of the most traditional um outreach efforts that a campaign typically leads did not take place and so um although the trump campaign kept holding rallies and and, and knocking on people's doors and others the biden campaign made a very conscious you know conscious decision not to do that um and to and to focus on on Zoom meetings and 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 invest heavily in TV and radio ads and 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 prioritize those areas, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what what Chris realized was that, and Chris and his colleagues realized was that, however important that was, it was also important to 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 kind of counter the vehemence and at some point even the aggressiveness of some of Trump supporters on the streets, you know, mm -hmm. because they held caravans and they were very loud and they were. Again, sometimes even aggressive to 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 voters on Biden's side, and so if if the if the campaign had no way to counter that and and to kind of you know just just show its presence and and its and its robust um, support, then you know there would have been an important vacuum there that that some someone needed to fill, right? Mm -hmm. And so what he and his colleagues started organizing were these car caravans, which are, you know, essentially yeah. um, rallies on wheels. And, um, and then they, they help like uh, drive in watch parties and others just to, to, to kind of generate a sense of belonging among voters. Right. Um, but because the, the campaign sometimes didn't believe in those efforts or didn't want to support them for X or Y reason, they ended up having to pay for them themselves. Right. And so, um, by the time early voting started, the numbers began to show that, um, again, Biden was underperforming among Latinos, that that um, Republicans were uh, pretty much, you know, um, kind of just reducing the lead that we saw um, among the Democratic Party uh, early on. And, and, and by the time the, the general election came, they had pretty much, you know, um, kind of cut that lead to to very very little, right? Compared to how it had started, um, and so and so, you know, I think the the limits of of investing in in TV and focusing exclusively on on digital really showed um, by that point. So, if I'm getting this right, they brought in around September. You're saying or late August, mm -hmm. the campaign brought in. Uh, the serious Hispanic outreach efforts in Florida, and they didn't have mm -hmm. an allocated budget uh, for the entirety of the election. Um, so, so they, from your reporting, they were unable to do their do their job. Now, just on just to spend a second on this character, Chris uh, Wills, um, mm. you he obviously went on the record with you for a November tenth piece, which I'll link in the show notes. Um, did he, one, mm -hmm. um, how did you uh, verify his account? Um, and two, did he uh, uh, fear any uh, pushback from the Biden campaign, which sort of has a narrative right now of being very, very well run 
um, and sort of a second iteration of like the no drama Obama, but the no drama Biden campaign. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so at the New Yorker, we have a very robust fact-checking department, mm -hmm. right? And so every single point that was included in the piece was, was directly fact-checked with the campaign. And so they had an opportunity to respond to, to some of Chris's comments and some of his observations. And um, they offered a comment on the record, which we included, and we yes. fact-checked every single detail with them directly, right? So um, so that's how you, you verify it. And on top of that, I mean, Chris and, and several others of his colleagues shared with me dozens of emails and, and even documents that that very clearly uh, indicated that the campaign had disregarded some of their concerns, um, mm -hmm. some of their requests for, for funding um, and, and for basic, really, really basic um, outreach instruments, right? Such mm -hmm. as, as a Spanish dialer, which is, you know, a software that allows you to do uh, a vast amount of calls um, compared to what you'd be able to do manually, right? If you were to mm -hmm. dial uh, every single phone yourself. Um, phone number yourself. So it's, uh, you know, those those basic details um, that, that are really key to any campaign were just not there. And and why the campaign made that calculus, I mean, it's hard to say. Um, I, I, I don't have an explanation for that. And I think um, it'll come a time when, when they will have to, to, to kind of come to terms with the fact that that Florida was a real failure um, and that more should have been done and more could have been done too. Um, and in terms of whether, you know, Chris was nervous, of course he was. Um, and, and, you know, this was, he, he was no, he was very loyal to the campaign and, and, and he still is, right? And, and, and everything he did, um, he poured his entire heart and, and even his money into getting Joe Biden elected, right? So, so I think going on the record was not at all an easy decision for him, nor for for some of his colleagues. But they also felt that, you know, if unless um, the people from the inside start speaking about some of the things that are not working and how they can be fixed, they won't, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, at the national level, yes, the the narrative is one of of, of a victory, uh, and and and. And that's really absolutely wonderful, right? But um, I think it's also important for the Democratic Party to to, to pause and, and look at states like Florida and, and really ponder and, and struggle with the hard questions of what could have uh, been different, right? Because um, at the end of the day, this is not something new. The Democrats haven't won a statewide election in Florida since 2012. So there are some systemic issues there that need to be addressed. And I think, you know, it's incredibly courageous to have people from the inside coming out and saying, we underperformed and we made mistakes and here's where, how we should fix them, right? Because that's yeah. the only way you can have an honest uh, and effective conversation uh, to, to make sure that some of those mistakes are not repeated in the future. Got it. So transitioning to the other side of the aisle in Florida, um, on the Trump side of things, mm -hmm. There's this YouTube celebrity mm. that you write about, uh, Alex. <laughs> uh, tell me if I'm yeah. pronouncing it wrong. Alex uh, Otoloa. Um, <laughs> Otaola, yeah. So he uh, is this uh, celebrity, uh, very pro-Trump. Uh, he's a, like a three-hour-long mm. radio and YouTube show every day. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit more about him and. Um, uh, what the, the, the arguments were for Trump 
uh, within the Hispanic American and specifically the Cuban American community in Florida in the lead up to the election. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Otaola is actually quite interesting because he belongs to what pundits refer to as the post-95 generation, right? Uh -huh. And so if you think about the Cuban electorate, there's this notion that all Cubans are are conservative, that they're Republican leaning, and that there's mm -hmm. nothing the Democrats can do about that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but when you get actually into the nuances of the electorate, you realize that that's, first of all, not the case, um, and that the younger generations are much more liberal um, and that they lean Democrat. And, um, and, and that, you know, the, the exile community, the Cuban exile community in Florida is ever growing, right? I mean, there are people that keep arriving, that still arrive every single year, uh, and it's it, and it's it's growing and it's diverse and um, the Cubans who arrived to the U.S. in the '60s have a very different story to tell from those who arrived to to the U.S. in the '90s, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, Otaola belongs to to that post '95 generation. And what's interesting is that um, these people um, supported Obama. Um, by wide margins in 2008 and even in 2012. And they again voted for, for Clinton in 2012. And what you saw in the past three to four years was, was a very radical shift towards the, the Republican Party. Let me get this um, right. They, and, the 1995 generation supported Obama twice and then Hillary Clinton. And then they yeah. transitioned to Trump. It, talk, yeah, talk more about that, continue. Precisely. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it's shocking, right? I mean, I because we're not talking about about a small shift. We're talking about a shift. I don't I, I don't remember the exact figure right now, but it was more than 30 points. Mm -hmm. um, and so several things come into play here. Right. Um, some some of these voters are, are, are genuinely drawn to Trump. Um, I had a historian make the case to me that um, you need to understand that 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 many of these emigres were were raised under a totalitarian system, right? And they've mm -hmm. been taught that the way to, to move forward in life is to align yourself in power, with mm -hmm. power. So, so they have a very malleable political identity that will shift depending on who is in power, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that is, that is one hypothesis. The other hypothesis is that these are people that have been swayed by disinformation. Um, so like people like Otaola, which we'll get to in a second, right? And, and really, I mean, I, I, the amount of misinformation um, that was spread in, in Florida is just, you know, really astounding, something that I had never, ever, ever seen And the amount of conspiracy theories. And, 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 and the thing about these, these, these recent emigres is that most of them don't speak English very well. And so mm -hmm. they kind of reach the country and, and they're exposed to a very, very narrow media ecosystem, right? And and so what, what makes people like Otaola, who is a YouTube influencer, so com so compelling and attractive is that, first of all, he speaks in Spanish. Um, he he, he um, airs his shows on YouTube, so they're easily accessible. It's not as if, you know, um, his his audience needs to have cable or, or something like that uh, to see him, right? Um, and and so he's he and he also belongs to that generation, right? So he knows the codes. He 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 can um, very well um, assimilate to to the experience of of someone who recently got to the country because he himself went through that not too long ago, right? And so and so knowing those codes is is just incredibly important as well, right? Um, and and so I mean, this is kind of like a new phenomenon that that has. 
perplexed a lot of people and that people are still looking into. Um, but, you know, the third element and, and the third hypothesis that I heard a lot was that the Republicans have a much more robust ground game at, um, at the state level, right? They're much more present in the state of Florida um, and, and that they're better able to groom voters early on. Um, what does presence mean? How do you define presence? Well, I mean, so from what I've been hearing, what I've been hearing is that the Democratic Party tends to be very active around the election seasons. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, outside of the election period, there's no continuity in that work that mm -hmm. there's, you know, they, they, they don't hold um, enough events that they're not in touch with their voters as much. Uh, and, and so it, it seems as almost as if they were parachuting into the state uh, just months before the election uh, to remind people of how important it is for them to vote and to vote Democrat, whereas Republicans are constantly there. Um, and, 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 and they've come to, they've, they've become kind of a, a, a reliable presence for, for a lot of voters, right? Um, and, so, and so that may be also part of the explanation. I mean, I remember one of the sources that I interviewed is Guillermo Grenier, who is a very, very respected um, sociologist at, at, um, at FIU, and he leads um, the Cuba poll. He's been doing that for a long time, and it's really arguably the most respected you know, the, the most prestigious poll on, on the Cuban electorate in Florida uh, and in the country. And, um, and when I asked him this question, he told me Democrats are nowhere to be seen. And I couldn't really understand that. You know, I, I just turned to him and said, what do you mean they're nowhere to be seen? And, and, and the fact of the matter is that, you know, um, Republicans are much more effective at, at reaching out to voters and at maintaining a constant presence in the state. Um, and Democrats have yet to figure out how to how to counter that. Um, and as I said, you know, disinformation was key, 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 key and central to the race. You're saying disinformation was, was central to the race. Like uh, the, the, the YouTube star, Alex, I'm gonna uh, mess up his name, but he uh, <laughs> uh, really labeled uh, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party as socialist and, commu and communist mm -hmm. separately. What kind of record was Trump running on in the Hispanic community and the Cuban and American community specifically. I know he's much tougher on Cuba, but you could expand a little bit more on what sort of tangible record he had with, with that community. I mean, I think there's a lot of tough talk behind this, right? Um, and, and, and the president can definitely point to the fact that he has increased sanctions on, 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 re, on the regimes in, in Cuba and in Venezuela as well. Yeah. But in terms of how effective those measures have been, there's not much he can say about that, right? I mean, the the, the revolution is the Cuban revolution is about to outlive um, his administration, yet and and it's uh, and it's you know yet one more administration since since the late '60s, right? So I mean, it's been proven that that kind of of of, of uh, sanctions heavy approach, uh, not to speak of the embargo, does not work. Right. Um, yeah. And and then on Venezuela, again, I mean, the, the, the president and some of his most senior advisors have been um, talking about the possibility of a military intervention in, in Venezuela for a long time. They, they've also increased 
um, the amount of sanctions leveled on, on, on senior officials and others. Yeah. But again, you know, Maduro is still in power. The humanitarian crisis has only gotten worse and more people are fleeing the country than ever before, right? And so um, I, I imagine that that a lot of Venezuelans and Cubans find comfort in, in, in that, that kind of tough talk and the idea mm -hmm. that, you know, the U.S. will somehow um you know offer a magical and 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 radical solution to their problems but the fact of the matter is that when you look at the record of the trump administration he's been able unable to do that right yeah. um and so and so i think it's 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 their support is much more much more driven by his words than than by his actions i mean mm -hmm. the same thing happened on 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 the economy um i can't tell you just the amount of times that I heard from voters that that the reason why they were supporting Trump was because he's been um, he's proven wonderful for the economy, right? Which mm -hmm. was you know it, it was it was inexplicable to 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 hear that considering that we we are in the middle of a recession and that um, the unemployment rates are are you know quite quite high mm -hmm. um, and and but it seems as if he's been you know really been able to to market his persona as as a successful business owner as a tough guy who gets you know things done and and good deals um, go his way and 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 all of these notions which which are la largely false um, mm -hmm. have come to resonate with a lot of people. Um, so yeah, I mean it's 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 very interesting, and and then on the other hand, you know, they presented Biden as a socialist, a communist, as someone who who would be very lenient on on towards leaders like like um, like Maduro and and um, not to speak of Ortega um, in in Nicaragua, mm -hmm. um, and so and 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 you know, I think that partly because of of, of the growing number of democratic socialists within the, um, within the Democratic Party, um, the Republicans have really tried to capitalize on that and, mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, extrapolate that and say, you know, the Democratic Party is the party of communism and it will lead the country into a path of, of chaos and disarray and to something you know all too well and you escaped and that's why you're here, you know? Um, yeah. So it's um, it's 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 a very effective message, and and you and even just speaking with voters, you realize that that theirs was a, a very very visceral reaction, right? That that it got to a point in which you were engaging with them uh, on those points at at an emotional level more so than than at a rational level. Mm -hmm. um, there was very it was very difficult to to kind of you know, just present them with the facts and, and, and have them contemplate them seriously, um, just because they, they, they would not listen to any of that. So we've honed in on the messages that, that you have observed uh, were really uh, potent in the uh, Latin American community. Do you think that a, a future Republican um, whether it be, you know, in the 2022 midterms, 2024 presidential, or really whenever, would be able to um, expand and learn from uh, President Trump's uh, uh, experience and record in the uh, Latin American community? Or do you Definitely. think he's a unique figure and that really wouldn't be able to be, you know, mimicked or anything? 
No, I think I think this is this is a very um, a very successful guidebook for 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 future Republican candidates, and and even you know if it worked with with someone like Trump who has been so aggressive to 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 the Latino community and has has scapegoated the community the way he has, I imagine that it you know any. Uh, any other candidate who is um, a bit more moderate than than he is uh, and less offensive um, would will prove successful with with such a strategy. And and I think that what what this teaches us and and should teach the the Democratic Party is that you know Latino voters should not be taken for granted. Right? There's this notion that that. Um, all Latinos are democratic leaning and the large majority are right. But mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's a third of the Latino electorate that for decades has been voting Republican. Right. Um, and, and what the Republicans must do, they know that there's no way they're going to win the Latino vote. That's out of the question. Right. But, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a game of margins and, and what they're going to do is try, um, try to cut as many margins away from the from the Democrats the way that they did in this election and they did so quite effectively, right? And yeah. if that requires the message of of of, of fear of manipulation uh, through the use of misinformation, they'll do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's it's important not to underestimate just how how effective those kinds of messages can be and the fact that you know their competitors are actually um, you know, doing everything they can to 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 get as many voters on their end um, as possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so, I think there's there's an important lesson there to learn for 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 Democrats um, not to take um, Latinos for granted and to talk about other things than than just immigration, which is also quite quite important, right? I think mm -hmm. one of the biggest misconceptions is that all Latinos care about is, is, is the issue of immigration. And of course, it's, it's, it's a crucial um, matter for a lot of people, but they also care about the economy, about healthcare. Um, and so unless you engage Latino voters on those topics too, um, you know, you're only, you're only having a very fragmented and, and limited conversation with them. Um, actually, this is something that, that was very evident in Florida where you know Democrats for a long time went into the state trying to 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 talk about immigration and others, and and they came to realize that for a lot of Cubans it it wasn't a priority issue because they've actually benefited from extraordinary immigration benefits over the years, right? Um, what's called the what people refer to as as a Cuban exceptionalism, which is something that that no other um, Latin American diaspora has seen in the country, right? And so. So for the Cubans, um, immigration really wasn't a priority. Um, Can you just explain exactly what that what that is? Yes, absolutely. So I mean, um, early on, um, as as I as I mentioned, um, this is an ever growing exile community, and 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 the first wave of of immigrants came um, in the late '60s, right? So um, as a result of the of the Cuban Revolution, and um, Democrats passed what's called and what's known as the Cuban Adjustment Act, which allowed um, Cubans to, to be placed on a fast track path um, towards a citizenship. Um, and, and actually, you know, the way, still, you know, the way things um, stand 
um, to this date is, um, is um, you know, Cuban immigrants who, who reach the country um, are eligible to, to normalize their situation within a year of living in the United States, right? Which is something quite unique. And there are 11 million undocumented people living in this country. Um, the large majority of them are, are Latino um, and none of them have benefited from, from those kinds of policies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, so, and so again, uh, Cubans for, for political reasons and for strategic reasons have, have benefited from, from, from these extraordinary privileges but that doesn't apply to a lot of other people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so immigration, because of these, these reasons, um, is not as, as, as crucial an issue for them as it may be for, for the Mexican community in the country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, even for them too, healthcare um, is, is a crucial issue. I mean, Latinos have the highest rates of, of uninsured um, people in, in, in the country. Um, and, and of course, the economy is also central, uh, central to, to, to their priorities. And so is um, racial injustice and others. So, so again, mm-hmm. just, you know, thinking about Latinos as a, as a single issue electorate is a mistake, uh, the same way it is a mistake to think of them as a monolith. And on a, on a broader level, let's discuss the, the terms, the, the words like Latino and Hispanic are the, the, words we generally use in, in America and English. It, do you think these useful, these are useful terms, number one. Number two, uh, would it make sense um, to uh, change, to, to refer to, to, to drop those terms and instead maybe refer to, to people we used to use those terms uh, with as either Mexican American or Cuban American or Guatemalan American, or would there be a better term? That uh, that you think we could use? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a fascinating question, and and I think it's 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 a question that a lot of us are still grappling with, right? Um, and I think that in some instances, it w- it is preferable to 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 refer to to specific diasporas, right? Whether it's the Cubans, the Puerto Ricans, the Mexicans, and and really get to to the nuances of 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 their own realities, their own. Um, their own priorities and 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 what matters to them, right? Um, and even again, even talking about the Mexican American community, it's just so diverse and so big that that even within those communities, um, there's there's a great deal of 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 nuance to account for, right? Which mm-hmm. goes back to what I mentioned um, at the beginning of our conversation with regards to to the Cubans in, in Florida and the different generations. Um, mm-hmm. And so and so I think you know it's um, the specificity is important. Uh, it offers nuance and, and I think it, it, um, it allows our readers to, to better understand the complexities of, 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 of what we call the Latino electorate. Right. But at the same time, you know, even this is something that now that I'm working on a piece about kind of the main um, takeaways of, of the turnout among, among Latino communities in the country, it's also, it's also helpful to, to have such an umbrella term to, to refer to our different communities, right? And so, although it's imperfect, um, I think in it, it certain cases it, it can still prove useful. Um, but I think it's also, as journalists, we need to be very mindful of each person's preference, right? I mean, there are people who do not 
like to use um, Latino or Latina and instead would, uh, you know, prefer to use Latinx. Um, so, so, um, so, you know, we need to be very respectful of, of, of those preferences and, and, and try to account for them in, in our reporting. Yes. Um, let's, let's expand on that. Um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, is probably the, the most mm -hmm. well-known Latino politician in the United States, maybe, maybe in the world. Um, well, maybe. Um, as we've said, you know, a, a deep range of political diversity. Um, can you talk a little bit about how she's viewed in the community? Um, yes, I mean, I think, again, because of how diverse the community is, um, there are people who, who admire her a great deal. There are people who disagree with some of her uh, quote unquote most um, radical policy stances. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, you know, among Latinos in Florida, among the Cubans, um, what you hear a lot is that they see her as, as, um, as, as a politician who's way too radical for them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some of, some of them um, kind of um, draw some comparisons between her policy proposals and her, um, her perspective on, on, on issues as climate change or, or the economy and, and others as, as something that seems reminiscent of, of what they heard in Cuba, mm -hmm. um, which to me seems like a bit of a stretch, but those are the kinds of things that you, that you hear. And they associate her with, mm -hmm. with a kind of like radical um, left-leaning branch of the Democratic Party that, mm -hmm. that is reason for concern, right? Um, and so that's, that's on the one hand, but then, you know, a, a lot of people um, have a, a great deal of admiration for her. They see mm -hmm. her as a, as a self-made um, woman who, who has um, built an incredibly successful political career up until this point um, mm -hmm. at a very early um, and, and young age. Um, and they see her as an example, right? And, and as you said, um, there aren't that many Latino politicians at such a senior level, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, there's also a need for more Latino representation um, within the government. And I think that, that to many people, it's, it's just wonderful to have her there fighting for, for the community's interests and representing them because again, mm -hmm. there aren't that too many people like her. I see. Moving from Florida to Arizona um, and Wisconsin, there was Lucha mm -hmm. in uh, Arizona, and um, I'm going to also mispronounce this, Voces de la uh, Frontera um, in uh, mm -hmm. Wisconsin. These are these uh, uh, left-leaning organizations. Can you talk about who they are, what they do, um, and their impact in states, you know, Arizona and Wisconsin? Absolutely. So, I mean, if you look at Arizona, for instance, um, in the early 2000s and, and up until 2010, there were a series of legislative bills uh, and ballot initiatives uh, that took aim at immigrants and um, Latino immigrants in, in particular. And all of that kind of culminated with the passage of SB 1070, which is known as the show show us your papers bill, right? Which was um, an incredibly aggressive bill. Um, and, and so you had a, a series of organizations, including Lucha, 
organizing and 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 making sure um, that um, Latino voters were aware of of some of these developments, that they knew that uh, there was something they could do about it, uh, that their votes mattered, and and that it was important for them to stay informed and to participate in elections, right? Mm -hmm. um, and 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 so um, what what we've been seeing in the past few years, uh, even you know as early as 2011, was that um, voters actually were able to recall um, the state senator uh, Russell Pierce, who was the architect of the SB 1070 bill, right? Mm -hmm. And then six, um, five years later, um, J Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who who is um, who who has been also a very controversial figure in, in in Arizona, was defeated at the polls, right? And so all of that, what all of that has taught us is that you know by organizing the community and by making sure that they know their rights. Um, they will be able to exert their power um, and their voices at the polls. Um, and then, you know, similarly in, in, in Wisconsin, um, you have an organization like Voces de la Frontera that has been um, organizing Latino communities for a very, very long time. And, and again, in contrary to Arizona, which has a much larger uh, Latino uh, population, um, in, in Wisconsin, um, Latinos make up roughly about 180,000 um, eligible voters, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but they are the fastest, fastest growing minority group. Um, and, so, and so although their share of the, of the overall population remains small, mm -hmm. um, their votes can and will make a difference, right? Yeah. And, so, um, and so, you know, what we saw both in Arizona and, and in and Wisconsin was the importance of having um, a constant uh, presence in the state, right? And so mm -hmm. the, the, the beauty of these, these organizations is that they know the communities very, very well. They're mm -hmm. trusted um, messengers within those communities. And so they're much better able um, to kind of convey messages of, of political empowerment um, and, and participation than someone who were to parachute from Washington at the very last minute, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so that's, uh, these organizations are certainly key resources for, for Democrats to tap into um, and, and, and kind of take advantage of the infrastructure and the trust that they've built among these communities over the years. Um, taking an organization like Lucha, obviously, you know, Biden won, He's going to be in office relatively soon, and uh, these groups are going to have a lot more power than they than they used to have. What do you think their sort of long term political agenda looks like, and uh, do you think they're how wedded are they to the Democratic Party? Well, I think at the end of the day, um, these groups can can work to, in this case, for example. Um, you know, make sure that a candidate like, like Biden, who, um, who um, they believe will, is in the interest of, of their communities at the state level wins, um, you know, they can, they can work towards such goals, but at the end of the day, these are independent organizations, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and they will remain so. Um, so I think that um, during the administration, what they'll do is kind of uh, continue to promote um, some of their their policy proposals and 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 
and, and fight for the changes that they'll like to see at the policy level. Um, and then, you know, when the election comes, they can, they can just, you know, kind of bolster the efforts from, from the Democratic Party, but whether they're, they're going to keep working kind of, you know, hand to hand with them, I, I don't know that that's the case, because at the end of the day, as I said, these are independent civil society led organizations, and, and that's their beauty, right, and that's their strength, too. Um, so I think, you know, they can, the Democratic Party can come to rely on them as allies, um, but but I don't I, I don't see this as as a very symbiotic relationship, right? Um, I think it's um, it's much more punctual um, than than maybe some people would hope for. It's sort of tactical, like a a few election mm. cycles, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I don't know if tactical is a word, but um, you know I, I do think that at at the end of the day they they operate at different levels uh, and their priorities are different. But um, because Trump was a candidate who, who was a real threat to the livelihoods of, of so many of, of, of these communities, you know, there was really a, a, a sense of urgency to, to do everything possible to make sure that he was voted out um, of, you know, of the White House. So, so um, I think the conditions of this election were, were quite extraordinary in that regard. Uh, you, in February, you spent some time and you created a video documentary, which I'll, I'll link in the, in the description uh, with Bernie Sanders's campaign in Nevada um, for the primary. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what he did um, and how it, you know, maybe differed from both the Republican effort and the Democratic effort in the general election? Um, so what Bernie did was exactly what, you know, Biden should have done in many, in many regards. Mm -hmm. Um, his campaign, well, his campaign was much better funded than, than Biden's campaign at the beginning, right? So they had much more money, um, than Biden did. And that obviously allowed them, uh, for more opportunities to spend it early on, right? And so when, when I got to Nevada in February, um, the Sanders campaign had been there for, I believe it was seven months at least on the ground, just canvassing and reaching out to voters and others. So, so their presence was, was um, quite rooted uh, in the state by that point. While, you know, um, well, while Biden hadn't done that, you know, his focus because of the limited resources had been on, on the first states on Iowa and New Hampshire um, at the expense of, of some other states, including Nevada, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so because of, of, of um, the enormous amount of resources that Sanders had, uh, they were able to invest that early on and they invested heavily in, mm -hmm. in, in Latino voters. I mean, Was it $14 I, million I, or something like that? Yes, or $15 million. And, and again, they're they were very, very transparent with their figures, right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the Chuck Rocha, who, who is the architect of, of the, the entire Latino outreach operation for Sanders, um, would, would, would be very open about the, the amount of money that they had spent, you know, and, and, and say so with pride, you know, and, and, and say, you know, we spent um, $15 million in these key four states to speak to Latinos, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 the, and the effort proved to be incredibly rewarding. Uh, but it wasn't only about the resources, it was also about the makeup of the campaign. Um, again, the campaign very early on said that they had more than 200 Latinos on staff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of having just kind of like um, a Latino outreach department that was uh, siloed um, mm-hmm. and 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 kind of operating on its own, uh, there was pretty much a Latino voice um, involved in 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 some of the most important and the most trivial conversations uh, that were being led within the campaign, right? I mean, the the Sanders national um, political director was a Latina woman. Uh, mm-hmm. You had Chuck, who was a senior advisor to to the senator. Uh, and, 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 you know, at the most junior levels, there was a great deal of Latino presence too. So that that matters, right? Because that means that the people who are making the decisions, the people who are thinking about the strategy mm-hmm. belong to the community and they know it well. Uh, and that that makes a great deal of difference, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that we heard a lot from voters um, was that no one really knew who Biden was. I mean, they could tell you that he was, um, that he had been Obama's vice president, mm-hmm. but other than that, there wasn't much that he could, that they could tell you about him, right? Um, and that was because the campaign hadn't done enough to to introduce him to to Latino voters uh, and make sure that that they knew who who the candidate was, right? And that is something that again, because of the resources that the Sanders campaign had, they were able to do that very very effectively early on. Um, and so, you know that he, and 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 you show the results. I mean, he um, Sanders performed. Uh, phenomenally well among Latinos during the primaries, with the exception of Florida, for for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I, I mean, he, I, I think um, Republicans will have a lot to learn from what Trump did um, in this during this election cycle, and I think and I hope that the Democrats will also um, kind of look at what what Sanders did during the primaries that proved so effective among Latinos. Uh, to try to replicate that um, and some of the the, the lessons learned uh, from that campaign uh, down the line. Got it. Got it. So, last question uh, about you. You uh, uh, you grew up in Mexico, Spain, France, and the U.S. and are a native speaker of English, Spanish, French. And you can also speak Italian and German. Am I correct? <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, so, I mean. How how does that drive? Uh, uh, did that background uh, lead you toward journalism originally? Mm, it drew me towards um, international affairs, which is what I studied. Um, I, I went to the um, I attended the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, and um, I focused on on foreign policy there. Um, and then I specialized in in Latin American studies. And um, I, I do think that it, it definitely nurtured, you know, an interest in, in, in world, world affairs and, and, and um, a great deal of curiosity uh, for what's going on in the world. Um, and, and yes, I, I think in a way that is intricately linked to, to, to what we do as, our, as journalists, right? Um, so, so I think, I, I know that I started off seeing maybe and now i think you you're absolutely right about that and um, it is um you know i i think that that what i what i grew up seeing um and and the different cultures that that i was exposed to and everything i learned from them um is is sort of the driving force of the work that i do as a journalist um and does it guide your current reporting nowadays um 
maybe certain skills that other journalists don't have that that you have? I think it certainly informs it. Um, you know, I found that it's that it's very important to to speak the language of your sources, right? And mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people that that I interview have a preference for Spanish. When mm -hmm. when I've done pieces on on Europe, um, I've I've spoken to sources directly in in either French or or Italian, and it makes a difference, right? Because you're mm -hmm. able to 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 better understand that person, to to engage with them at a more intimate level um and have more of a nuanced conversation with them right um and so i i do think that that it's important um and and i think that uh in terms of communication it's 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 actually quite central to to what i do fascinating i wish i spoke so many languages anyways thank you i really <laughs> you can appreciate always it learn. <laughs> <laughs> no thank you thank you it's um it, it was my pleasure that concludes my interview with Stefania Taladrid from the New Yorker magazine. Um, I'd, I'd say my primary takeaway from this really interesting episode uh, with her is that the Democratic Party and the Biden campaign were unable um, for a variety of reasons, which we discussed, uh, lack of funding, lack of interest, lack of uh, support over a long period of time. Uh, they were unable to really reach out to the Hispanic community and uh, get them to turn out for Democrats and Joe Biden specifically, although there are obviously examples uh, to the contrary, specifically Lucha in Arizona. Um, but as seen with President Trump and Senator Bernie Sanders, there are ways to uh, honestly and effectively uh, work with the Hispanic community uh, and bring them uh, more into the political process. Uh, anyways, I want to thank uh, Stephanie Intelligent again for making the time to come on and thank you for listening uh, to this episode. As always, please promote the podcast on your social media. That's how more people find out about it and rate it, whether it be on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen.